This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. What is our attraction to the old? Why do we visit ancient cathedrals, swoon at an old tool at an estate sale, marvel at thousand-year-old decaying leather sandals under glass at a museum? Those of you out there, does your heart beat faster at the recognition that the violin on your bench, it's older than the ones you normally see? Something about the way the belly, over time, has warped under the weight of the bridge, the way the back has gone lopsided with years of pressure from the soundpost. Or maybe it's the wear to the tips, the uneven varnish, the scroll that has lost its precise edges. For those of us who hold in our hands every day objects that came before us, we can't help but treasure the art of preserving for the ones that come after us. But there is something curious happening in our modern world For these violins in our hands today, a shift in how we make, something that didn't happen hundreds of years ago when violins were the slick new toy on the scene, the ones that still live on from then. They have come by their age honestly, but we are, as a community, increasingly making new things that look old from day one. How'd that get started? Why do we do it? And how do we do it convincingly? Coming up, we have the legendary, the one and only, Antoine Niedelec from the Chicago School of Violin Making. Stay tuned. This episode of OMO is brought to you in part by Encore Orchestral Strings, the violin shop within Pages Music in Indianapolis, Indiana. Pages Music is celebrating its sesquicentennial 150th anniversary this year, which has been Indiana owned and operated since 1871. John Riani, the manager of Encore, has been a lifelong admirer of and advocate for new making. He's a fine cellist and he provides a trustworthy place to send one's instruments and he gives the best hugs west of the Allegheny. Aw, and while he's hugging you, this is what he says. I want to encourage you that the work that you do, instrument makers, bow makers, restorers, shop owners, It is deeply important and appreciated. The world desperately needs great art, and you are creating it, preserving it, and facilitating it. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. This episode of OMO is brought to you in part by House of Note. Did you know that? I did. Aren't they up in St. Louis Park in Minnesota? They are. They are. And I talked with Jeff Anderson, the owner, recently, and he is feeling that crazy return to normal, brisk, end of May, beginning of June, all the stuff that happens. Rental seasons come in. Yeah, at the, like people making those sales at the end of the year, people picking up new instruments. He's, mm-hmm. uh, he's feeling the crazy up there, which is exciting. I don't know if you're getting that at your shop either. Uh, it's, it's starting to feel like, uh, like home again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, you guys aren't doing the appointment only policy anymore. We did it for a while. We did uh, locked door appointment only. 
Yeah. Still trying to enforce appointments, but you know, walk-ins are coming. It's getting, yeah, it's getting crazy. So I'm glad to hear that energy is happening up at House of Note. Hope it's going all around the country like that. Thank you, House of Note, for your investment in the show. (laughs) And just a reminder that House of Note is a full-service violin shop serving the community at all levels, from the beginner student to the selective performer. Hey. Thank you. House. Of. Note. For. Your. In. Best. (laughs) In. The. Show. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) We rule. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Go ahead, go ahead, cut me off. Welcome back, Homo sapiens. Some might say you need no introduction, but just for kicks, let's go through it. Antoine, you are the executive director at the Chicago School of Violin Making. And if we're talking legacy, as people do in this field, you worked for Peter Preer and Sons while attending school, and later J and A Bear upon graduation. We but see in Texas, you act- not in te- not the real J and A Bear, you know. J and A in Texas. J&A, Thank yeah. you. I didn't uh-huh. wait. Okay, so what does that mean? Where in Texas? Because I don't know. In Dallas. In my in my backyard. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to know more about that in just a minute. Well, we uh, we see you active in the VSA, in the American Federation of Violin and Bowmakers, and at the Oberlin Workshops. You're an active maker and a silver and gold medal winner for some of your instruments. What what did I miss? Did I get it all? Uh, I think you did. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hi, Antoine. <laughs> Hi, Chris. And it's Antoine, correct? We, we have to say it correctly. Uh, if you want to say it correctly, it's Antoine. Antoine. Ant- Antoine. Oh, I, I've been saying it wrong for years. You just let me roll over on that, huh? <laughs> That's okay, man. So, uh, I mean, I got to say, I feel like you're one of the best in this game. Uh, your part in educating the current generation of violin makers especially American violin makers and people who produce antiqued instruments at a metal winning level is clear, at least to me. I think you're giving me too much credit. I knew you'd say that. I mean, you, you've, <laughs> you stepped into Oberlin at a time when, you know, sharing was, was sort of a, a small secretive thing and you and Jeff laid all your tools out on the, the table. And I mean, I guess my question is, what was the name of that French rap group that taught you English? Uh, NTM. Yeah. Can you do a little bit of one of their songs for us? No. <laughs> <laughs> My wife warned me that you would try to make me sound stupid. No, I don't need to try to make you sound stupid, buddy. You're a grown man. You can do it yourself. Thank you, Chris. Yes, I love you. I love the direction this is going in. Uh, about uh, Oberlin and people with secrets. Before Jeff and I demonstrating our varnish technique, you know, Greg Ave did it for years. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think we should give him some credit too. I think Greg should get all the, the credit. Yeah, I learned a lot from him as well. But the, what was 
different with Jeff and I is we not only demonstrated on the group project, but we also told people to bring their own work and we actually help makers varnish and antique their own work. Yeah. And we pretty much shared all our technique, but man, it's not like we came up with anything new. That stuff was around for years before we demonstrated it. When you say Jeff, you're referring to Jeff Phillips, correct? Yes. Okay. Basically, the way it started is in, I first attended Oberlin in 2011, and they have the, those funny prizes at Oberlin. They have one for the little golf outing. Uh, they have one for best cooking little dutch boy and they have the dutch boy award which is named after con padding for the best varnishing by one of the attendees and so i i won that award but i don't know why there's different ways you can win the award you can be very good at it or or absolutely terrible over it <laughs> I, I would like to I would like to think I got it because I'm pretty good, but I'm not sure. Uh, I definitely got the golf award because I'm terrible at it. Yeah, yeah. I've only ever won a cooking award at, at Oberlin, so I'm kind of a big deal. And so that was the year we started the bets project, where we had yeah. the the bets from the Library of Congress. And Christopher German was looking for a team to varnish it the next year. So I told him that uh, I would definitely like to do it. And I would like to invite uh, probably the best maker in the world, in my opinion, Jeff Phillips, who also happens to be my best friend. Aww. So we were, uh, Chris agreed to it. And the next year we started on the on that project and ever since we've been involved in many others and um, what we did different is Jeff was actually the one who handled most of the group project but I brought one of my own violins and I showed people antiquing and also helped with their own project. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure that I understand when you say, did you say the uh, Betts project? Yeah, the Stradivarius, uh, name after Betts, 1704. Yeah. Okay. It's in okay. the Library of Congress here in town. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think it was actually the first time it got out of the library, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, it's the first time they let it off the premises, not just in town to let it be played by professionals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then after that, we did the Chrysler del Jesu. And, mm -hmm. I worked on that with you. Yeah. Yeah, and the actually the most happy I've been with was a copy of uh, of the Sloan of the Jackson Strad. Oh God, so beautiful, man! The Leonora Jackson. Yes, because that one we actually handled not only the varnish but we also handled the white work. Yeah, and some of the some of the group projects have been frustrating. I mean, because everybody wants to explore stuff. So uh, on the Chrysler, I remember as soon as the varnish went on all of the toolpath marks from the way it was worked in the white swelled up and everything kind of had to be, especially on the scroll, kind of had to be recut. It was, it was frustrating. Well, you know, I, I think that's one of the problems of group project, right? Of course. You can uh, lose the, the general concept, right? Like particularly with tool marks, one may, makers is trying to reproduce some of the 
original tool marks and then the next one scrape them because he's used to do clean work. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a human centipede and then at the end there's a violin. Yeah. See, I was going to say that everyone <laughs> develops their own shorthand for how they get the process done and doesn't necessarily communicate that to the next person. Yeah. But you know, human centipede also works. Yeah. Well, and it's you learn a lot from working in groups because but the the hardest thing is is learning when to not be the one who does it your way. And uh, of course, it's it's a matter of personality, but uh, I would recommend that absolutely every maker makes themselves work with others because you're forced to do things outside of your comfort zone. And there's no way you're going to get more versatile if if you don't do that. It's also a good way to always reassess how good you are to work with others. It's it's super easy in the violin trade to go in your little town and you're alone and Everything you do, you think you're great because you've got nobody to compare yourself to. Yeah. And then, then you go to a place like Oberlin and suddenly you realize how much better everybody around you is and it, uh, it gets you into shape pretty quick. Absolutely. Well, I would have that fear about teaching, actually, that now that you, Antoine, are in a, a, a place where everyone is looking up to you so much, that you would become lax and start to believe that little ego voice on your shoulder that you really are the best. I mean, I guess Jeff's coming to town and Jeff's so good, nobody can feel like the best with him around. So, hey, wait a minute. Oh, Chris, d- don't worry. Students are very good at uh, keeping your ego in check. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny because I thought, you know, I'm, people are going to be excited to work with me. And they're a bunch of ungrateful bitches. No, but you know, I, I showed up thinking, well, they obviously have won gold medals and and they're going to be really happy. And I, I would say maybe half of them didn't even know who I was. <laughs> Speaking of that, Chris, you've got a story about a conversation at a past VSA convention about winning medals yeah, for yeah. violin making. Uh, I think it was 2014. Yeah. Um. And I was I was looking at all the instruments I'd entered in the competition afterward. I hadn't won anything. And I was I wasn't sad, but I was kind of chewing over them and thinking about, you know, my 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 big head, my big hopes going into it and how it came to nothing. And uh, Gonzo, Gonzalo Bayolo, he came by and he showed me the medal he'd won. And, uh, and he looked at my stuff and he said, uh, you just do exactly what Jeff and Antoine show us and then you win the medal. And <laughs> I'm like, Th- thanks, Gonzo. Yeah, I'll try. I tried. I'll, I'll try that uh, next next year. Uh, oh, that was 2014. I think that that was the year you and Jeff uh, won a medal jointly for an instrument you built together, and they only presented one medal to you. So you guys fought over the medal on stage. That was 2012. 2012. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who ended up taking that medal home? I did. Nice. Nice. But that's okay because I, I deserved all the credit for this instrument. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you impart any knowledge with us about what is involved in following those directions to win that medal? Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, so if we're following your directions about winning a medal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do we how do we get that medal? You told me your three rules of antiquing. What are the three rules of antiquing? 
Well, I'm sure I have 3D French rolls by now. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, basically with Anti-King, you have to jump off the cliff, completely screw it up, yeah. and then pretty much climb your way slowly out of it and fix it. That's how it looks authentic. It's actually authentic. Yeah. And very often by the time you make it back to the top of the cliff, you try something to get you that little 5% of getting even better. And that's usually when you fall all the way back down. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just should not be scared of making it ugly before you're making it look good. When getting the callus to, to get rid of that fear is, is all of it. it. It really is. Just, just getting to the point where you're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll fix this tomorrow. Like that, that's... But let, let, me just, let me just say your three rules as they were taught to me. Are, are you okay with that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, number one is use chemicals. Oh, number, gosh. Number two is <laughs> lie about using chemicals. <laughs> and number three is have Jeff Phillips on speed dial. Yeah. <laughs> number three is pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. That was from when we were we were rocking flip phones, man. People were still on speed dial. I don't even answer my phone anymore. Hell. You sure don't. I'm, I still love you guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember one time I made you mad, Chris, because I contacted you on a Sunday. Uh-huh. And I got a very angry text saying, dude, it's Sunday. And I swear to you, I was waiting to send you another text on Monday at... 12. <laughs> like 1201 a.m like what now bitch yeah <laughs> so speaking of jeff phillips you're here to let us know that he's joining you guys again at the chicago school yep very excited that's so great man when's he coming on board he's uh he's gonna join us beginning next trimester in january Oh wow! Shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's moving out. Yeah. Have you missed riding bikes with him that much? Uh, well, the thing is, in in Chicago, we won't get to ride bikes, so we we actually are gonna have to work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but th- this is something that's gonna give you a hard time, Chris. Yeah. I remember on one of your shows, you uh, kind of talked bad about the schools. <gasps> About schooling, about the uh, the lack of neuroplasticity in schooling, and and I think this is where you get it wrong. Okay, you know, of course, you could get an internship with somebody, but I actually would question how many makers offer such opportunities and how many of them are actually good. Especially these days, yeah. And and schools are a great way to to learn and. And look what's happening. The people I was sitting with in school, Ryan Saltis, Jeff Phillips, Luke Degner, Mm -hmm. uh, some others, uh, Michael Doran, and look where they are in the trade now and look how much I've learned from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something that would have been much more difficult to get had I not attended Salt Lake City. Mm Mm-hmm. And all, all that early networking you're doing and friendships you build, and it's incredibly valuable. 
Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, and, and look now, uh, Ryan, Jeff, and I still collaborate very, very often, and we all feed off each other's success. I remember you contacted me and told me you had an emergency and I needed to take a call from you. And then when I answered the call, you were just pissed about that episode. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh God, like it did something terrible happen? Does Antoine need my help? And you're like, listen, you son of a bitch. The things about school are. <laughs> you know, I, I was never good enough to learn on my own. So school was a, a great environment for me. Uh-huh. There, there's some people like, you know, Jordan were just geniuses and we can figure out just anything they want. Yeah. And that, so it is a matter of personality. I ignore the fact that even if the method taught, and I think this is different now at, in Salt Lake and in Chicago and elsewhere, even if the method taught is not the viable one you come to, that learning the discipline and making those connections uh, is is something that's well worth the money. And I mean, I, I've been talking with my employees at the shop at Potter's um, since, you know, we got the the earworm that Jeff was coming to, to join you. And, and two of my employees uh, went through VMSA and two others had apprenticeships. And all of us are like, yeah, I'd, I'd go back to school. I'd go back. I'd mm-hmm. go back and sit with Antoine and, and Jeff. I mean, mm-hmm. well, please do. No, I'm very busy. (laughs) One other thing is you also learn from your peers. When you're in school, you learn from the students. Everybody, even if we offer a a general concept, people still try different methods and and we all learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that is vastly different with what we do now in Chicago and maybe in Salt Lake and Boston, I, I don't know. But I pretty much have an outline. There's a way I want things done. But I'm not scared of some challenges and changing a little, trying different things. You know, we in school, we learned with a Mittenwald way mm-hmm. and it was pretty inflexible. Yeah. But... In Chicago, and I'm sure in Salt Lake and Boston, it's not that way anymore. Yeah, it's changed a lot, especially in, in Salt Lake since Song Hoon moved over and now Alex is, is working there. Uh, the capacity to be flexible and teach a little bit of antiquing and let other methods creep in. I mean, I, I was the last of the students to have Peter at Peter Preer at the shop teaching, he was still teaching a lot while you were there. And uh, that was a, a very draconian, shall we say, German uh, uh, overlord to have, you know, I, I think things are more flexible. That's a good thing. I, I did love Peter, by the way. I love Peter. He was a monster and I loved him. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, I think one of the main differences, all these schools back then, they taught the Mittenwald way. Yeah. Peter was a graduate of Mittenwald and the Warrens were doing your school. Yeah. Uh, well, Mr. Lee was a graduate of Mittenwald. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought he yeah. studied in Chicago. No, he worked for the Warren, but he was a graduate of Mittenwald. Antoine, you mentioned this specific word of inflexible, and it sounds like you're pairing that with Mittenwald. Uh, can... Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. No. I didn't mean it that way. 
Okay. Uh, no, no. Newton <laughs> valve is great school, great method, but okay. But then when it made it into a, the violin making school, you basically had to do what you were told, and you had no. That's it. Like that's okay. how it had to be done. And how does that contrast with now, how people are being taught? If you could give maybe a specific example. Uh, for example, um, the, the biggest difference in method is, for me is mostly with the edge work. Um, we learned at school how to do uh, edge work, four millimeter thick, a flat platform, and then do the purfling before the arching channel. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I don't want to create any controversy, but that's... It's silly, and the old instruments don't indicate that that was the traditional method, if that's the guiding light we want to work by. Yes, well put. Uh, you, you, For example, you'll see uh, next to the purfling that you still have scribe marks from when the purfling channel was scribed, and then the channel got carved, and it's with Italian work, it deviates at the corner. And if those marks had been done on a flat platform, when everything is gouged away, those would have disappeared, and you mm -hmm. still see them. Mm -hmm. You also see glue ghosts. You see uh, on many Del Gesù, I've seen a little knife mark where the perfling is joined at the upper and lower about the two pieces uh, is just because you cut across it at the plate to joint the pieces yeah exactly yeah so if i could just reiterate you're talking about the like the one long bottom piece of purfling that goes mm -hmm. from one corner to the next it's yeah. not one piece it's two pieces yeah got it okay so I, I give the student the frame for that but we still try a bunch of different ways which is not something I had the opportunity of doing when I was in school. So yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, we tried to do the channel all the way to the edge, except at the corner, like Roger Hargrave um, writes about in the Del Jesu book. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to do a little platform, you know, uh, for the edge thickness. Uh, if we do strad work, uh, We've, I've let the student make some Guadagnini models where the channeling goes all the way through the corner. Yeah. Um, so we, we tried different, different things and we, we tried to get different results with different working methods. We, we tried to touch on different methods. What I worry about is that you're driving... The and this is already an old man view for me at 40 years, you're driving the market to a place where these bastards are going to be too good when they get out of school. I don't need all these kids being this flexible and this <laughs> capable and be able to think about different methods. This is garbage, man. I need a bunch of assholes making mitten vault instruments that mine are clearly better than. <laughs> You know, I, I'm actually amazed at how good the students are. I know. I know. It's, uh, it's scary. <laughs> even when they start, they are, what they do is way better than anything I've done when I was at school. That's how I feel, too. 
And I, I don't know why. I don't know if they have more uh, material, like with the internet and different books. And... It's because we Americans ate more beef as children than you did. You were drinking goat milk. I know this. No, I was drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> you go from the, the teta to the grape. Yep. <laughs> Uh, you you came by years ago at Oberlin and you gave my script my scraper the mm. Antoine prescription treatment. You took it away from me and you grabbed a file and you changed my relation. You saw I was making Adele Jesu. Uh, you changed yeah. my relationship with tools and wood texture. I mean, you really changed my mindset about how to glorify the tool marks and texture instead of shamefully scrubbing them away. Like at school, we would hang our instruments for years. And then when we were ready to varnish, Peter would make us scrape the dirt, which was the nice color from hanging in the window away. Um, so I guess my question there is, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> we work too much with little tools. We are enamored by the little finger planes and all these. And I can I can almost guarantee you that the the Cremonese makers used the biggest tool they could find for the job Amen. and used very little of the small ones. Why waste time? Yeah. And it's it's why it's so hard to reproduce those Del Jesu tool marks. It's because they come from the very first tools he, tool he uses. Mm-hmm. Huge movements with large tools done with confidence and done from the center of your chest. Yep. The result is the method. Not You're not excruciating the process. You're, you're just doing it the right way. Well, yeah, wow. Completely agree. And, and, but they were actually very good at cleaning the final product. Uh-huh. Well, I'm sure they had like some nephews in the corner with some shark skin. Give it to the boy. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Chris, uh, speaking of scraping, you mentioned a scraping room earlier. What is Oh, the death of quality for me. The scraping room in Salt Lake City, Antoine. Oh, yeah, I still have nightmares about it. (laughs) So there was this room under the stairs that was completely dark, and there were dividers, and then there were lamps, and they would stick you in there for days on end to get you to completely get rid of any texture whatsoever. No, no differentiation between the hardwood and the softwood and the figure, no corduroy in the top. Um, and I, I was bad at sharpening scrapers and I just died in there. I, uh, Antoine, do you want to hear my poem that I wrote on the wall in the scraping room? Sure, man. <laughs> hear my visions going dim. All the walls are closing in. How can I commit to making when this room my life is taking? And I like sat in there like a sad opium drunk poet, like carving this into the wall (laughs) instead of working on my violin. Such emotion. (laughs) If you could win medals on passion. (laughs) (laughs) And not my violins, I would be Antoine Nedelec and Jeff Phillips. It's true. (laughs) So do do you have a difference in philosophy from... What was probably a mitt involved thing that, that Peter picked up um, and finishing for your students? Not to create controversy, just... Well, n- no, not really. Um, I mean, th- there is something I, I learned from Peter and that I tried to do at school is work ethics. 
You know, it's it's the most beautiful job in the world. Good, yeah. Violins are the prettiest objects ever made, and on top of it, everything sounds better on the violin. But it's not an easy business to succeed in. You've got to have some talent. Uh, you've got to work hard. You also have to be pretty lucky. Yeah. Uh, Amen. You also probably need a good support system. If you want to make all the sacrifices that are actually needed to to succeed, it's probably good to have a better half with a better job. Yeah. Uh, but but at school, I, I really tried to run it like you would a workshop where everybody's at the bench, everybody's working hard, and we just make instruments one after the other. And we just make, make, make. And that's how I teach too. I, I'm still a violin maker. I, even though, you know, I'm constantly interrupted and I try to answer every question, I, I try to lead by example. Yeah. If you want to do this, you've got to be at the bench six days a week, if not seven. And there's going to be a lot of years where it's seven. Yep. You got to be there. You got to put the work in. And uh, if you don't love it, then it'll make you miserable. If you love it, it's it's pretty special. Yeah, there's no other job where you actually wake up and you're happy to show up to work. In 2016 and 2017, I mean, you, you said that your favorite was the the Jackson Strad, which is uh, Uncle Bill Sloan's fiddle. What a, what a wonderful human he is. Um, and that you liked it best of the group projects you've led at Oberlin because you did both the woodwork or you were, you were in charge of both the woodwork and the varnish, but um, yes. how did you find the result aesthetically, tonally um, as a piece of sculpture? How did the finished product strike you? Uh, the finished product is amazing. It's a little bit shinier than the real violin. <laughs> little bit newer. Yeah, but uh, no, it's it's really good. I'm looking at the Jackson right now uh, on the internet. Not I don't have it in my hand. Uh, I'm seeing lots of dirt baked into the varnish, especially in, in those grain lines along the front. Um, I'm seeing that it used to be a nice nice brown red and most of that's worn away it's just kind of at the corners um do you want to add anything else to your experience with this one yeah it's pretty amazing on those old instruments how very little original varnish is actually left on them yeah and how much of the color you see is from uh patina and polish yeah Yeah. and of course that incredible cremonese ground and that's where the uh, we all fail at antiquing. Chris, you know how it's funny when two people look at a violin and they both see something completely different and both people are actually completely right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and with a Cremonese work, you, you look at an instrument and, and your first thought will be, wow, what a really dark ground. And then the very next person that looks at it tells you, wow, what an incredibly light ground. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, that, that was bare wood. Nothing was done to darken it. And so I've always thought that's just really interesting. Uh, 
um, I think Gabor and Philippe nailed it on the head. Their, their thought was that the wood oxidized over the years. Now that's Gabor Draskowski and Philippe Ile for those listening. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I, I truly hope I'm not misquoting them. And that's something that Jeff and I have actually talked about before I even heard it from them. But that the, the wood oxidized, but the layers that's actually protected by the ground on the varnish uh-huh. oxidize less than what's under. Aha. Uh-huh. Does that make any sense? So age beneath what was treated has become darker than what was treated to prepare the wood for varnish. Correct. Wow. And and the reason why you see both light and dark is because that top layer of ground might not be very dark, but what's underneath is. And I, I don't know if it happened with age or if it did get a little bit of help with chemicals when it was first made. I, I really have no idea. But the way we do it now, we have to darken the wood with chemicals and we get that top layer really dark. Or you boil some, some plates for a while, yeah. just boil them. Yeah, but, but so if you put chemicals on a piece of, of wood, even if it's been tanned, the top layer of the wood is dark, but what's underneath is still not very dark. And basically, you have the opposite of the classical Cremonese instruments. Interesting. I see. I see. Well, and I, I, love, I love this because uh, if you're not using nice enough oil varnish, or if you're not doing your ground right, you won't have the capacity to even think about this because the more oil varnish of quality that you put on to a dark, dark ground, the lighter it becomes because it's throwing light around within itself. Yeah. So if, if you're putting the wrong varnish on or not getting the experience, oh yeah, wow, that's, it's, it's a minefield, then, then you'll think that your impression of the varnish is canon that that is absolutely how it is. Sorry, I, I confused myself. One thing I wanted, uh, I actually wanted to start the show by apologizing to your listener, um, listeners, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Our one guy, <laughs> one guy listening in Alabama. <laughs> and, and, and I'm so sorry, uh, Jerry's voice is, Perfect for radio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike, as you can see with a horrible accent, is definitely not. No, no, but you have a face for radio. Exactly. I wanted to tell people that I'm more of a TV guy (laughs) because I'm so handsome. It's true. It's true. I know they can't see it, but you'll attest to that, Chris, right? Yes, you you remind me of a of another Frenchman whom I greatly admire, a a young Andre the Giant. Oh, thank you. And I'm all, speaking of that, I'm also very tall, in case you're wondering. It's, you're tall in your heart, my friend. You're tall in your heart. <laughs> oh. Well, Anton, we're going to have to wrap up in just a moment. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about the program that's happening in Chicago? Yes. We are actually on top of... Uh, adding the one of the best maker in the world uh, in Jeff Phillips. Amen. We we also adding an assistant teacher 
His name is Jordan Ripstein. He's actually the guy who cooks all our varnish because we do cook our own varnish at school. Oh, he was he was there. Is he working for Ken Stein? At one point, he did some okay. time ago. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. And and so that means we don't have one, we don't have two, but we have now three teachers for uh, woodwork. I I really admire Chrissy Siegfried Ballinger and her work. Um, so I'm glad that you're you're making these big moves in in her wake as she leaves. Well, we are going to miss her tremendously. I wish she was staying, but she has bigger, better plans. Boston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did want to uh, t- tell you a story about Peter Prior, Chris. Please. Uh, he used to say there's two kinds of violin makers. The good ones and the ones who ski. <laughs> <laughs> no um, shit. Did I hey, hear that right? Come- the ones who ski? Is that what? Yeah. yeah. So Kyle Hill, it's okay, buddy. You're both. <laughs> Kyle Hill, you're both. And you know what? I'm not a really good skier. So that, does that mean I'm okay at violin making? You, it must be. F and A, right? You are. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, before we wrap it up, I I do want to say when I was in school, I had the best teacher in the world. And I, I hope I'm as good with my students as Charles Wolf was with me. He's so very sensitive and, and understanding. And Chris, to uh, go back to the French accent, you know, there's still some words I cannot say. Do you want to hear them? Is one of them posse? Uh, yes. <laughs> go ahead, go, please. Another one, please. Another one is sheets. <laughs> Excellent. I also try to stay away from Farkas. Okay. <laughs> And also the beach, beach, the beach, the beach. I'm <laughs> gonna have to relabel this episode. It's not clean. Oh man, <laughs> well, Antoine, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Antoine, I'm so glad we got to talk to you. I do want to share that Chris, before this, mentioned that there was a gap for a while in just in excellent making, especially when it came to antiquing. And you are part of a movement. And he said, you guys are the reason why American makers make such beautiful stuff today. So we're it's happy to so have true. you. Well, I, I'll, I'll take the compliment, but I don't deserve it. But thank you. Yeah. And, I'll, you know, one more thing about the Chicago school is we have the, the privilege of having the one shop help us out a lot. So I want to publicly say thank you to uh, Jim Warren who who been incredible with us with his support and always bringing really nice Italian violins and it, it's been really incredible to have somebody like that around us there's no replacing that I mean uh, yeah. I went out of my way when I, I finally started to make a little money at this to go up to the National Music Museum every other month and to go to Oberlin and uh, you can't replace what it means to, to new violin makers as well as, as, you know, old salty dogs like you to actually get the real instruments in our hands. So that bless you, Jim, for doing that for the next generation. Yeah. Thank you again, Antoine Niedelek. And we're very excited to see what's coming up next with the Chicago school of violin making. 
guys coming up, we've got a coda. We're going to actually wrap up this year with uh, Chris and Jerry and talk about what's coming up for next year. This is, 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 and this is Dakota. Dakota. Hey, Homo Sapiens. Hi. It's the end of the year. We made it. I've got Chris and Jerry here. Hey, Rosie. Ahoy, hoy. And little special guest joining us just, just today. We have got our editor, Jason Peoples. Hello. Hi. Hey, Jason. <laughs> Jason's not little. He has a huge Greek beard. <laughs> he doesn't. It's clean shaven right now. Oh. Yeah. He was he was clean shaven when I visited you, Chris. I know, but I you are an icon of like <laughs> like Achilles on the field. Like like there are there are birds in that beard. When you grow a beard, <laughs> it's epic. It's it is epic. It's an epic beard. I'll take that. So guys, we uh have almost made it through 2021 in America. How are we holding up? Fuck this place. I'm going home. <laughs> oh. Wait, I'm going to... Uh, here, this is the wine. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, uh, 2021 was kind of a different, sort of more challenging, but easier than 2020. Yeah, yeah. You know, people... <laughs> Dude... It's that was two thirty in the afternoon. It's not even. Oh, it is that late. Yes, I know it's five o'clock somewhere, but come on. What? Don't don't at me. <laughs> I am a grown man. That's debatable. It's been a hard year for Chris too. Okay, Jerry, you were saying. Yeah, it, in a lot of ways, it was a different challenge to twenty twenty. I mean, people, the waves of people came at different times. Sometimes they. (laughs) I got nowhere to go after that. Chris, how about you? He's got stuff to say. I feel like um, I came to a place where I was too exhausted to be present anymore, at least in what the, the media blitz was keeping me on top of. Mm. And I've always been very aware and maybe even define myself by how present I was on issues and and things which are ostensibly political, even if they're about human rights. And I had to bow out. Mm. And I've been better since and I've felt guilty since. Mm. Right? I got off Facebook. I... Mm started taking the advice of letting the the news that I reacted to only be from my own microcosm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also tried to take a lesson from my, my friend, Rob Wood, who started going into DC and doing delivery for people that couldn't get groceries, started doing things for others when he felt bad. And uh, tried to make it a point to turn my nervous and negative energy toward positive interactions that weren't just stating my opinions from a tiny digital mountaintop. Um, So I'm working on being a grown-up and Mm -hmm. doing that, and I'm still loving those 
That's what she said jokes, guys. Of course. Of course you are. Of course. <laughs> uh I I had a lot a lot a lot that happened this year and I definitely connect with what you said about Chris about I didn't bow out of social media, but it was a year and a half of reevaluating why? Why are we connecting? What good is it? What are we really saying about ourselves? What are what are we trying to announce to the world? Uh, and it was a very personal, private time in my life. I transitioned from being married to going into more of a co-parenting relationship and at, moved to a different place. Did you kill your husband? Uh, no, he's still because he I like him. Don't partner. don't kill him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, He's a good dude. He's the Don't father of my child uh, and uh, learned how to co-parent, uh, got my own place um, in a wonderful new relationship right now. But that was all a lot and in, in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, I'm happy to still be standing and I'm, and I'm happy to be in a place now where I think I can give more focus to my professional life. I was it was uh, good for you, Rosie. It was just a lot all at once. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'm missing the connection that I have felt with the Luthier community. I think just us not being able to be in each other's physical space, even more than, you know, a regular year, we can all get together maybe a couple times a year and reconnect. And that just wasn't possible for the last year and a half. And uh, it started feeling more like, for me at least, um, being on that island uh, that I think probably people many years past in this industry felt like they were all the time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to see people's faces more. I, I'm ready for that. Would you say you're an island boy? Just trying to make it. <laughs> I'm an island boy uh, in the stream. Yeah. <laughs> but guys, uh, anything else we want to add about this year? I want to hear. I want to hear Jeeples talk. I want the Jeeps. Bring it, Jeeps. Here I am. <laughs> Rock you like a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we're in Texas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this year, especially with all that isolation, I, I really have been trying to focus on investing in the people in my circle. It's kind of like you were saying, Chris, like, how can I take action mm -hmm. and invest in those people instead of just react to people far away that I can't get involved with? Yeah. It's been good. I think there's a – we all have a platform, which – I believe is unhealthy, but I know that the zeitgeist is against me. Um, we all have a platform which gives us a feeling of gravity and importance, which is not bankrupt, but very short in duration. And uh, I, I think that um, we have to stop talking game and accomplish small goals for goodness or change, which might not be on the scope that our platform fools us into thinking we can affect. Mm -hmm. 
Well, if your if your platform's real, it extends into your everyday life. Yeah. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. It's short but powerful. It's about how you use it. Well, guys, my platform. That's that's what I've heard. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> we'll be taking a one month break, guys, and we will be back in February. And in the meantime, I would like to tell you a little bit about some of the things we have planned upcoming. And we want to hear from you. If you think I really love that topic and I am a nerd for that topic and I have a story about that, can you reach out to us and let us know? We we want to get more involved with you guys. So call for submissions, stories we want to cover for 2022. One of them, how do you get back to healthy when you've been injured on the job? Chris, you had an experience with that this year. You cut your hand really bad. Mm-hmm. Drugs. Um, yeah, do you, <laughs> drugs. <laughs> do you have employers who understand your need to heal? How do you make ends meet financially when you can't do the work for a while? Drugs. Uh, drugs. <laughs> uh, Jason. Tell me that Japanese term for the viewing of old tools. What's it called? Sukomogami. There you go. Okay. I'm going to try to say it. Sukomogami. Yeah. (laughs) The soul of a tool. Viewing old tools as living things, objects becoming animate over time. Do you have a tool that is alive for you? Are you in a partnership when you are using that tool? Talk to us about it. Sticking it to the man. Glue. Hide glue. (laughs) How is it made? What is the canon in using it? Who's breaking the rules? Jerry, you got any thoughts on this? It's a sticky situation. Hey! Shout out to my dad who used to microwave it. Shout out, daddy. Moving on. (laughs) I can hear Jerry rolling his eyes. No, actually, that, that, that can be valid. Oh, Okay, well, we'll get into that. I want to know more about that. Just don't overcook your protein. People put it in the fridge and they microwave it. Don't overcook <laughs> your protein. No, you're allowed to hate it. <laughs> all right, we got a song ready to go. Sorry, it just <laughs> happens. No, blue songs, I'm all for it. <laughs> we want to do a longer piece following people as they just begin their violin-making journey, uh, hopefully at a school. Uh, We want to hear what your perceptions are before you begin and then regroup with you later to find out how it actually was. Uh, Are you a young one in the field who wants to talk to us? I'd like to shout out someone whose name I don't remember who I've never met. Great. Uh, Do it. Chrissy (laughs) Siegfried Ballinger sent me a photo from the Chicago school from a young lady who had made her own felted action doll of the tusk creature from the movie tusk and i am you are my um you know non-romantic soulmate and i hope <laughs> that you and i can talk in the future and like if you would like tori hogan would do if that's tori if, if you did that own up to it because it's totally cool was tori hogan on 90210 uh, yes <laughs> Finally, yeah. Well, she's because, uh, currently a school student at, at 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 CSVM. So, well, Tori, if it was you, I want to hang out because you are so cool. Full stop. Cool. 
Uh, also, are you an orchestra teacher? What is your experience working with a violin shop? What is helpful to your success? Give us your feedback. And we really, really want to do stories following famous instruments. Do you know someone who's playing something with history and some pedigree? We would love to talk about the many hands that have held it over the centuries. Just, you know, our very own red violin. And, uh, and we'd love to hear it played as well. Is, what is that? Are you upset by that? The greatest <laughs> trick the devil ever played was casting Fred Oster as the guy from... <laughs> What's his name? As Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, is that... Is that how it, it really is? Fred Oster right. was no. cast as Samuel got, L. Jackson. Wow. I gotta apologize. <laughs> the person's name, I just looked it up, was, um, was Tori. I'm so sorry. It's Tori McDonald. I am so oh. sorry. Now we know. Did you call her Tori Hamish? No, Hogan. I think Hogan, Hogan. was her... Oh. Um, was her maiden name? So it's like Scottish Tori Amos. No, think Hogan's Heroes. Thank you for being an Oma Sapien. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oma was an all Luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples. Music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at Patreon.com/slash/OmaPod where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening. strong enough. I don't care about how you fry.